I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Every fortnight we bring you a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening. Growing your own fruit and vegetables, plant care, pest control, garden design and container ideas. Plus expert seasonal advice on what you should be doing in your garden right now. I'm Tony Dickerson, one of the RHS's team of horticultural advisors. Coming up in this edition, is your plot too wet, too dry or both? Don't despair of finding plants that will survive such extreme conditions. Our experts reveal new research into plants that can thrive in such harsh environments. Matthew Biggs delves into the archives to tell the stories of 40 legendary figures from history who've changed the art and science of how we garden today. And, as always, the latest news and events across our four RHS gardens in Surrey, Devon, Essex and North Yorkshire. Now, choosing plants for difficult places. Is your garden on a floodplain or a sun-baked terrace? Or perhaps the conditions swing violently from one extreme to the other. Unfortunately, this is the case for gardeners in many parts of the UK. Many of you contact the RHS to ask for advice on plants that can withstand such difficult growing conditions. As the number of inquiries the RHS receives about drought and flood have been increasing in recent years, our advice team decided to conduct some research into the problem. They asked RHS members to report on which plants they found to be best suited to extreme conditions in their gardens. From the results of these surveys, RHS advisors have been compiling a useful guide to species that should tolerate the difficult growing conditions that many gardeners face. One gardener who contacted us to discuss the successes and failures in her challenging plot was Sue Eden, a long-time RHS member who lives in the southeast of England. Sue gardens in often flooded conditions in winter and drought conditions in summer. She has been observing the effects on her garden plants over the past 24 years. RHS advisor Jenny Bowden went to visit Sue to see how she has worked with the challenging conditions she faces to create a stunning, beautiful and productive garden. We're in the South Downs in a little place called Stoughton and we're at Mitchmere Farm with Sue Eden who has a rather lovely garden and um, we're particularly uh, interested in having a chat to Sue because she gardens in these conditions where it can be very very wet in the winter and it can dry out in the summer and so we're interested in the types of plants that people could possibly plant in their own gardens that can tolerate those conditions. So over the past year or so, I've been working on a project uh, to really investigate plants that will tolerate very, very wet soils in the winter and very dry soils in the summer, because this, this seems to be a, 
a slight emerging pattern uh, coming out over the past few years as we we look at the issues around climate change and there's quite a lot of documentation on plants that will tolerate dry soils there's quite a lot that will tolerate wet soils so I've I've cross-referenced our own work uh, those two particular lists of plants that we've got and done desk research and um, I was interested to hear what gardeners what they had found from their own experiences in gardening in these conditions. So what is it that happens in your garden and how often? We're on what's called a winterbourne, which is a stream that comes up in the winter as the water table rises. We're on chalk and in fact I'm down in the bottom of the valley and there's gravel on top of that. So it is very, very dry in the summer and as I say, it can flood in the winter. But it happens about every six years but it could happen two years in a row and then it might not happen for five years I did know that it happened when we came here so to a certain extent a lot of the trees and the more permanent planting I did look around at as types of plants that were growing I knew oaks were all right I knew hazel was all right willows I guessed at there were one or two apple trees in the garden so I thought okay let's try those moved on to crab apples. I used other lists that I found, RHS lists, and used those to help with the families of trees that would do well. What really hasn't worked? That's interesting. What hasn't worked are prunus. I planted some cherries out there and every single one of them died and I thought it was me. And then, in fact, when we came, there was a Victoria plum in the front which wasn't doing very well and then we had when we had our really really wet winter it died and there's a wild plum at the gate which is slightly higher but again on the wet winter half of it died that was a disaster i lost some rather nice trees so if you want to try a new plant are there any specific preparation methods that you might use to to help it get off the ground given the conditions that you've got well if you try and plant out here you take a bucket with you and fill it you fill it with flints before you start and i tend to take some on the particularly the biggest ones out and i possibly add a bit of leaf mould a bit of garden compost but I don't do a huge amount of preparation because they've really got to survive where they are and it is pure gravel this side that side has got that side of the stream the south side has a little bit more soil but this side is pure gravel how far is the planting from from the water just so people get an idea when the when the water really comes up high the whole of the orchard is underwater and basically the stream is running not just through the the channel that we dug but it's running right across the garden on that side on the south side a little bit to the north but not so much and of course obviously anything plants on the bank which is mostly comfrey which does fantastically well it's the lower growing one that I couldn't do without. But the, the, your house walls are probably about um, 10 metres from, from, for example, the edge of the river and you've got a parterre um, coming out from the house with some quite uh, interesting bits and pieces. So, so that presumably gets quite, quite wet where the agapanthus are and plants like mm. that. Could you tell us about some failures and successes directly sort of in front of the house which may get very wet and then indeed very dry because it's, op- it's an open sunny garden? 
which plants would you say are your top? Are they your top plants? Could you give us some some rankings of the most tolerant plants that you've noticed over your 25 years of gardening here, ranging from from the trees right down to the smallest things? Trees. Oh, the ones I absolutely love are the crab apples. I have got a great selection of crab apples. I've also got a great selection of the hawthorns, and both have thrived. They've just loved it. The beautiful little trees in blossom and in fruit, they're probably my top plants. I think trees come very top of the list with me. Okay, and then and move, then move other into plants. the next scale, mm. perhaps some shrubs, shrubs. examples what of some I've, shrubs. Ah, now, what I've just realised is that viburnums do well. What I found very difficult was with planting shrubs out here was finding evergreens that would survive with their feet in water. Lots and lots of dogwoods, lots and lots of willows, but finding evergreens was really, really tricky. And herbaceous plants, the most successful ones in the herbaceous plants, so we're coming down in scale. Well, the most successful one is the low-growing comfrey. I mean, comfrey itself is fine, but the low-growing one is... And the the one I've got, there's the... Uh, sort of yellowy, the one with the yellowy red flowers and then the other one has got sort of pinky blue flowers. Unfortunately, it's mainly the pinky blue ones along the river by the orchard. And of course, those colours work beautifully with the apple blossom because they flower at the same time. And so I'm, comfrey is a, quite an invasive plant, very, very useful for sun or shade. And it, it does give very, very dense ground cover. And... Um, it breaks when you try to weed it. <laughs> um, very long, deep roots, um, and it's often used by people to put in their compost heaps and make a fertilizer out of. Uh, so, so that's how 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 you might know it. Um, but it, it is very, very useful for all sorts of situations. But you do need the space. Uh, so, if you if you're looking for a plant to go in a rather um, unpromising site. Um, which is far from this one, Um, it it, it will certainly tolerate some very, very unpromising conditions. Agapanthus are one of your successes, I believe. They are, and I'm really quite surprised about it. But they are doing so well in the front garden, I absolutely love them. And I don't feed them, I don't do anything to them at all. They disappear in the winter, they come up again in the spring and they flower and they're fantastic. So agapanthus are one of the most stunning plants with their big, big, usually blue heads, big round blue heads, South African, um, that, as you say, toler- tolerant of a wide range of uh, situations. Some of them are evergreen. Uh, they're more tender normally. Uh, I, I expect you've got the des- deciduous ones with their long, st- strappy leaves uh, that die back completely in the winter. And you can get white flowers as well. And if you're very lucky, they self-seed and you can get pale blue, white, dark blue, and maybe you'll be able to name your and there was something we walked past earlier a type of virus you've had great successes with that it's rather a nice clump that's the winter flowering iris which i think is now called something quite unpronounceable iris inquilaris or something iris tolosa is much prettier it's i love it because the flowers come up in the middle of the winter i pull them put them in a vase inside and they're so perfect and they're so fragile and how they survive in those sort of conditions i don't know mine is at the base of a south wall so it gets lots of sun in the summer but the water is it's standing with its feet in water all, all winter when the water comes up and it doesn't mind at all and it's an evergreen and it's an evergreen <laughs> 
So finally, have you got any helpful suggestions? What advice would you give to somebody who's new to a garden in these conditions, uh, given your great experience over the past 25 years of developing this amazing place? I think I would, again, I'd go back to trees again and think about the trees that you needed just to start off that height that's so important and to get the structure going with the trees and just look very carefully at what you plant if you have got these sort of conditions. Sue Eden in a beautiful Hampshire garden. Based on their research, surveys and feedback from keen gardeners such as Sue, the RHS advice team have been compiling a list of plants that have been found to be tolerant of very wet and very dry conditions. This list will be available online in the new year and hopefully will help gardeners choosing plants that will survive extremes. Jenny Bowden and Principal Gardening Advisor Lee Hunt explain. So we're here in the labs at Wisley. We're looking out over rather what is rather a wet, soggy day, um, which has been the picture for a, for a few weeks, actually, after having had rather a dry summer. Certainly the latter part of the summer was dry. Then the early part of the autumn has been rather wet. Now, these are conditions that plants deal with quite happily most of the time. But in recent times, over recent years, um, we've been starting to notice a few patterns arising where the winters have been extremely wet and the summers have been very dry and so we've been starting to think about plants which will tolerate both of these conditions so we've been looking at the idea of plants being underwater for a week or more and then in the winter time and then drying out in the summer and to this end um, I set up a survey asking gardeners which plants they thought tolerate both of those conditions. And we're now at a point where we can uh, not exactly come to some conclusions because that would be that would be still too much of a generalisation, but just a few plants that people might like to try. Um, they're, they're not bomb-proof, but they're more to, perhaps more tolerant than some, some other garden plants. Uh, so, so we're still quite guarded and it really is just the beginning of this area of research. Um, Lee is my colleague in the advisory department and um, I'd just like to ask him a, a little bit of, about the background in terms of what we already know. What Jenny has been describing is weather. So weather is what happens today, it's what happens yesterday. And that means that, yes, you can get wet weather, dry weather. OK, so as that pattern progresses and it becomes over many years, it becomes what we call climate. So the, the general patterns. And if we look ahead to the predictions of climate change, this idea that we get uh, drier summers, wetter winters and more critically, uh, erratic weather as well. So where you might see um, big storms in the summer bringing a lot of rain in a short period of time mm. and again prolonged wet or dry periods in the winter um, mean that these conditions for gardeners are might most likely to be more common in the future. So, um, OK, in my, I, my own garden, the gardens I've, I've been involved in, I have seen it where we've had water lying standing for many weeks over the winter and then those same plants have been baked hard in the, the summer months as well. So it's trying to think, well, which of those in, from my own experience survived? But then how does that work with the other information that Jenny has been getting in from all the people that she's been surveying? 
okay, you might not have a wet and dry garden automatically, but you might have an area in your garden as well. So um, sometimes where it comes down to a wall, the water gets trapped behind, but then it dries out in the summer. Similarly on the edge of a driveway where all the water gushes off into a lawn or border. These are the sort of conditions that you might encounter. So there might be um, reasons why you, you find these plants very useful, even if you don't get a whole garden of it, as it were. So um, just starting with the herbaceous plants, uh, things like ladies' mantle with those wonderful uh, furry leaves and bright green flowers did very well. It's one of those things that we know is both a bit shade tolerant and coats well with a wide range of soils. So perhaps it wasn't necessarily surprising, but uh, people have voted very strongly for the fact that that can tolerate both wet and dry. I suppose my only add to that is that um, when it does get very dry in the summer, uh, you don't, when you cut it back hard after the flowering, you don't get so much regrowth. So it takes a while to look so good um, again in late summer. But I certainly think that's one of the, the ones that is definitely a, a good cert. Another one that comes top is is geraniums. Hardy geraniums in general are a very good bet. Um, we've, we've picked a particular one, which is called Roseanne, which is an award of garden merit. And again, uh, that shouldn't need cutting back. That should flower all season long, uh, right right from April, May, all the way through to the first frosts. So that's a, that's a very good doer. But we have had reports of many, many different cultivars of, of hardy geranium doing well. And daylilies are, are another one which we've had reports time and time again. The thing I'd add with daylilies is that they're really good, really resilient, but they do dry, die back a bit the foliage. So pull out some of that dead foliage in midsummer and they'll look fine. Um, from our scientific research as well, one plant came up which matched Jenny's survey, which was uh, lamb's ears or Stachys byzantina. And it has got those wonderfully soft grey leaves. Uh, that does very remarkably well. Which is quite a surprise. Yes. Well, it's a Mediterranean plant and we typically think of those as needing hot, dry conditions. They cope with that. But um, even from the scientific research, we found that they were very well able to cope with prolonged wet conditions in the winter. I also find that it self-seeds. So (laughs) funny enough, you buy one plant, but then you will often find that you get little seedlings which seem to do particularly well in your own conditions. So pick those and grow those on as well. Fuchsias seem to do very well and people are reporting that the smaller flowered fuchsias, so they're the hardy, obviously the hardy types, uh, so uh, fuchsia magellanica, which is uh, the one that you see in the hedgerows in, in Cornwall and Ireland and places like that, very tolerant. And roses in general have come out tops as well. If you go for species ones, they can also be really rather robust. So, for example, uh, rosa rugosa, often used in hedging. That's that's a good one. Yes, I've found... Funny enough, with that particular rosa rugosa, there's a hedge in a garden that I've looked after. And whereas a lot of other things like calicarpus died, which have the, they have the purple berries, these did remarkably well and they've sat through many, many seasons. So something I wouldn't have necessarily anticipated if someone had said to me, what should I grow? But actually um, experience and other people's experience seem to bear that one out. And uh, in the slightly larger plant section, trees, uh, Amelanchia, uh, turned out to be quite a, a good doer, uh, as was Cretaceous, which is hawthorn. So again, it's I suppose uh, related to natives, um, uh, so quite widespread across the country. Uh, for example, you could choose uh, Cretaceous. Uh, Paul Scarlet is a, is a lovely selection uh, if you're looking to plant in this situation or any situation. It's a lovely tree, and. Uh, 
And from the grasses, Miscanthus, that was a real top plant. That, that really had quite a few um, good responses and there are many many cultivars to choose from it was miscanthus sinensis just the the, the species uh, which was reported but within that you could choose Kleinfontaine is, is an award of garden merit uh, plant that you might consider but there are many to choose from but miscanthus seemed to turn out very very well also that ability to self-seed that way of propagating themselves and keeping themselves going came out very well a couple of the plants that were perhaps more surprising were nortia which has the little pinkish uh, uh, pink cushion like flowers and those purple tops of verbena bonariensis now both of those are not necessarily very cold tolerant but because they self-seed even if they do die out in the toughest seasons they do self-seed pop up in spring and then go again so that along with uh, just common borage the blue flowers and the uh, foxgloves as well have come up really well too so this has really been a starting point for us and um, we would love to hear from people if they've got any experience of gardening in these conditions it's, it's not a closed topic it is just the beginning and we've got scientific research underway at the moment looking into the differences between um, species and cultivars of primulas and their resistance to being waterlogged and drying out so uh, please please let us know if you've got any gardening experience of uh, waterlogging in the winter and drought in the summer You'll be able to find more suggestions for plants that will tolerate wet, dry conditions on our website later in the new year. Search winter wet or drought rhs.org.uk It may be getting chilly, but there's still plenty of activities to enjoy and things to see at our four RHS gardens. Join us at RHS Garden Hyde Hall for the magic of Christmas on the 4th of December. We're celebrating the magic of Christmas with a special visit from Santa Claus and his cheeky elves. Please note that it's strictly one child per two adults, Booking is essential and places are free for grown-ups and £6 for children. RHS Garden Rosemore will be laden with festive treats during the Christmas food fair on Sunday the 6th of December. With the very best of local produce including cheese, meat, cider, pastries, jams and much more. It's the perfect place to stock up some gastronomic goodies in the run-up to Christmas. Free with normal garden entry. Join RHS Garden Harlow Cars Catherine Mudsgrove for a guided Christmas walk on the 11th of December. Catherine will give you ideas about how you can make your garden interesting in this tricky season and will show you Harlow Carr's impressive natural Christmas decorations. The walk will end with a mince pie and warm drink and your own one litre potted holly to take home. Discounted places are available to RHS members. Enjoy the festive atmosphere of the Christmas glow at RHS Garden Wisley between the 3rd of December and the 3rd of January. Light installations will be dotted around the garden in the shape of magical giant illuminated flowers. Visit at dusk as the gardens open until 5pm Last entry, though, at 4pm. Buy half-price garden entry tickets, £6 adult, £3 child, for entry to the garden between 3pm and 4pm. For full information and more events, visit rhs.org.uk forward slash gardens what's on. Throughout history, how we garden and how our gardens look has been continually transformed by great gardeners. People have been driven by a passion for plants, a passion for design or a desire to solve a nagging horticultural problem. Such passions have led to the undertaking of great plant hunting journeys, the discovery of innovative new techniques and new scientific breakthroughs. And these gardening firsts have been led by individuals who have combined remarkable determination with remarkable personal stories. Plantsman, gardener and broadcaster Matthew Biggs has long been fascinated by such heroes of horticulture. In his new RHS book, 
lessons from great gardeners, 40 gardening icons and what they teach us, Matthew traces a fascinating story of some of the most influential figures in gardening. Along the way, he's visited some of their stunning gardens around the world and reveals practical hints and tips gained from their long years of trial and error. My name is Matthew Biggs and I'm a gardening writer and broadcaster and I've just written a book for the RHS called Lessons from Great Gardeners, 40 Gardening Icons and What They Can Teach Us. It's been absolutely fascinating because it's allowed me to delve into personalities as well as the horticulture that goes with it. The the brief that I was given was, well, first to choose 40 great great gardeners from all the gardeners that that have ever been, which in itself was quite a challenge. So after pondering that for a while, I then decided to break it down into styles of gardening because otherwise you could have had... You know, 40 great cottage gardeners or, or 40 great landscape gardeners or contemporary gardeners. So the idea was to represent the best of those styles and the gardeners who had been most influential therein. We decided that this package should include as many people as possible who had the Veach Memorial Medal. James Veach was an RHS committee member and a member of the family, the great nursery family, who were the Veach's Nursery in Exeter. Veach's Nursery uh, sent out great plant collectors. The, the, the legendary Ernest Wilson went out collecting from them and brought back the handkerchief tree or the dove tree, Davidia involucrata, uh, from China. Uh, William Lobb, while working for them, uh, brought back Sequoia dendron giganteum, the giant redwood, uh, and introduced into commerce monkey puzzle trees. So There was a lot of influential plants that arrived in our gardens because of this. Uh, And the idea to to commemorate him with a medal uh, came when a group of eminent gardeners gathered together and they discussed how he should be commemorated. And somebody said, well, why don't we actually commemorate him with with a medal? And it's awarded annually to persons of any nationality who have made an outstanding contribution to the advancement of art, science, or the practice of horticulture. So this... Using this, this medal as a basis, and people who had been awarded this medal, it allowed us to, to go global. Now, what I found was really interesting. The, the idea behind the book was not just to gather well-known gardeners and look, to, look at the way that they garden, but, but also I wanted to try and find out things about them that nobody else knew. For example, I, I discovered that Jeff Hamilton uh, received a, an NDH distinction, which is the National Diploma in Horticulture Distinction, which is the, the highest uh, practical uh, award that the RHS give. Anybody who has an NDH, uh, in, in my eyes, really is stratospheric. But he got a distinction. How amazing is that? Uh, Jeff Hamilton was one of our great media gardeners. Uh, Jeff Hamilton was a presenter of Gardener's World. He was a magazine editor and was very influential. And a lot of people remember him because he was like the chap next door. He was the bloke next door and he would turn up uh, on the TV and give you gardening advice. And he was the person primary. He was so practical. He actually believed that anybody could do anything if they just practiced enough, if they had the information and the right tools. So he didn't believe that gardening was just for some people and not for others. Uh, and he went organic for environmental reasons because he tried it at the garden and, and he said, this has worked for me and that's why I'm passing it on. So he was instrumental in bringing environmental awareness 
into the garden and making it mainstream and making it the kind of thing that you know everybody would do. It was a fascinating insight into these great gardeners. All of the people in the book are people who have changed the way that we garden today. But what I found really exciting was this, this fact so many of them were totally passionate about their gardens. You know, they, there's one of the gardeners called Will Giles. He had been living with a lady for about 17 years. In fact, I had the pleasure of knowing him. And she delivered him an ultimatum saying it's either me or the garden and he said as much as I love you I love the garden more and he lived out his rather bohemian life uh, just gardening every day it was absolutely phenomenal Matthew Biggs's book RHS Lessons from Great Gardeners 40 Gardening Icons and What They Teach Us is available by now at a discounted price at the RHS online shop rhs.org.uk forward slash shop on our website you can also find a range of other books plants and gift ideas something to please any garden lover this season or if you're looking for an unusual christmas present why not give an rhs show ticket voucher so family and friends can enjoy a wonderful day at one of our world famous shows again you can find details on our website rhs.org.uk forward slash shows gift voucher well that's all we've time for in this edition we'll be back in a fortnight For now, from me, Tony Dickerson, and all the RHS Gardening Podcast team, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.